Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, folks, and welcome to Chewing the Fat. I'm Leland Whitehouse with the Yale Sustainable Food Project, and our guest today is Dr. M. Jahi Chappelle, who is uh, currently the Director of Agricultural Policy at the Institute for Agricultural and Trade Policy in Minneapolis. Um, Dr. Chappelle recently spoke at the Yale Food System Symposium, which happened this weekend, and uh, now we've got him for chewing the fat. So thanks so much for coming in, Dr. Chappelle. Oh, my pleasure. Your intro, uh, the blurb they wrote about you on the Yale Food Symposium website says, um, Chappelle combines agroecology, conservation biology, political science, sociology, and ecological economics to create a unique understanding of the stakes and opportunities with con- within contemporary food systems. Um, that is a seriously complicated conceptual lineup. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of embarrassing. I mean, I, I wrote I wrote that blurb, so it's. <laughs> no, I mean you you've got a lot of bases covered. Obviously, how did your thinking about food develop um, to include so many different disciplines that I guess don't don't always belong in the same sentence like that? Uh, that's a, a really interesting question. I mean, uh, I've been interested in sustainability, and I would guess you know, I'd say human rights for a really long time. Um, I was an engineer in undergrad on the way to being a veterinarian or a zoologist, I thought. Um, but uh, I, I ended up taking various diversions. But when I came to conservation biology, which is sort of my, my original love, and went to graduate school, I brought, I think, sort of an engineer's mindset that my question was, we've got these issues with sustainability and we've got these issues with human welfare. How do we solve both of them? How do we put these together and and find the right technical solutions to solve it. And so I went into there with that mindset and it led me to an interesting place just going, okay, well, looking at the literature, working with these great academic scientists at University of Michigan, we have a lot of technical solutions, or at least we have a lot of knowledge that's not being implemented. Uh, you want to start trying to implement it, you're going to find some things that you need to change, but we haven't even gotten to that point. Uh, so if the hangup is not that we don't know what to do, what is the hangup? And that led me really quickly to just look at social systems and um, maybe because I didn't come already from a specific social science discipline I felt like oh well there's actually a lot of different pieces that are useful and there's a lot of great people at University of Michigan where I went that had different things to offer and so I was encouraged by my mentor John Vandermeer who's an amazing mentor at University of Michigan agroecologist but really widely read and uh, he encouraged me to take different classes with different people in political science uh, Latin American underdevelopment. Uh, actually, one of my first intros into these areas was um, a class called Objects of Desire, which was a class, uh, Karen Aber's first class. She's a professor here at uh, Yale, mm-hmm. and it was the first class that she actually had organized as a graduate student. And I learned a lot about anthropology, and it it, it just seemed obvious to me there were really important connections between a lot of different fields. And so I sort of made it my business to have what I call a tourist fluency in lots of different fields, to be able to ask where the bathroom is in sociology. <laughs> and to be, know enough to be able to go and ask someone who maybe is more focused in that field, okay, well, this idea seems really important to what I'm trying to study in food systems. Can you explain a little bit more to me about it? And uh, functionally for a dissertation, for my PhD, you had to focus on a couple questions. So I had a couple areas I really focused on in political science. But uh, for my postdoc, which was at Cornell University, a lot of people use their postdoc to develop expertise in another field. Um, often that's if you're an ecologist, you you know develop some expertise in genetic 
uh, molecular markers or something or you know genetic techniques. For me, I'd had some exposure to science and technology studies, and I said, well, I want to keep learning about that and deepen that. And that's what I did at Cornell and worked with some excellent people in that field there. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, it wasn't a journey that I took consciously trying to think of different fields, but I led, I, I followed what was interesting and important to me. And I try and put together enough to be able to figure out where the common cores are and use that to understand systems and then to use it to keep asking and questioning the right people who know more than I do. Okay, well, how can we apply this or what does this mean in your in your context or your field? And did the... Um the sort of confluence of all those schools of thought happen at food specifically as opposed to maybe like energy production or these other uh, sort of equally plausible places for those things to interact. Was that, uh, uh, is there a longstanding interest in food in your life or was that sort of more of a fallout of the interesting work that was happening around you? Yeah, I think it was more the, the work that was happening around me. I mean, my mentor is an agroecologist and I mean, the argument that agroecologists and a lot of people work on food make, I mean, is that Food is one of the most intimate ways that humans and our environment, our natural environment, interact. Uh, I mean, even thinking about ecology and biology very basically, food is the way that the environment becomes you. You're taking in parts of the environment and making them into parts of your own body. And so that always seemed to be, to be, to be powerful, both sort of rhetorically and philosophically, and also to really reflect the fact that it's a really intimate connection between the natural environment, which is where I started in terms of conservation biology, and uh, uh, human welfare and being a very basic issue. If you don't have enough food, you don't have enough anything. Um, and also just on the research side, I mean, food and agriculture is one of the most important effects on the environment, occupying around 40% of the Earth's non-ice-covered uh, surface. So when you think about the environment, and this is happening a lot in ecology right now, people are thinking we really need to think about agriculture. So there's obviously other key areas, but food, yeah, just seem very intuitive. And... Um Sort of in line with this, the blurring of the lines of the disciplines you need to be conversant in to, to make sense of what's going on. I know you um, have spoken a lot about and, and uh, I imagine thought a lot about there's this particularly um, stark divide, at least traditionally, between activism and science uh, that um, it sounds like there are some serious proponents of, at least within the scientific community, who say, like, we're not, we don't want to touch that. Uh, and you... I know disagree with, at least on some level, with that with that assessment. Can you could you flesh that out a little bit? Sure. Yeah. That that uh, was to my uh, my partner one of the signs that I really needed to uh, think about this job I took in uh, think tank and uh, nonprofit because a lot of my work uh, I realized had turned into basically trying to tell scientists that this idea was flawed. I mean, frankly, it sort of became maybe sort of haranguing scientists about this flawed idea. And she said, well, maybe that means that you need to try another area. Right. <laughs> uh, but I mean, there's a lot of scholarship around it, especially in science and technology studies. And there's, yeah, I don't know. There's so many ways to uh, approach the question. But, I mean, one of, the way, one of the places I started is Howard Zinn, who is a historian, and said you can't be neutral on a moving train. And uh, Paul Robbins, who's a political ecologist and the director of uh, the Institute on the Environment at Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin, uh, wrote, I think, a great book, Political Ecology, and talking about the project of political ecology is to show that apolitical approaches to the environment especially just end up privileging those who already have power. Hmm. That you ha start with a system that already has political power in it, and trying to ignore that political power is just going to perpetuate it. And so 
I like to say that you know apolitical approaches to especially ecology are actually less scientifically accurate than political approaches because politically policy politics are the reality and so you have to be engaged in that and do so in a thoughtful way even if you don't want to take a side so to speak I think you need to do that from a position of knowledge about what the stakes and sides are but beyond that uh, recently at the Ecological Society of America meeting I, my one of my presentations was about the really horrible history in conservation biology of disadvantaging people with less, with less power because you weren't aware of the stakes. Um, one of the examples is uh, the Lacundon jungle in Mexico and advocating for conservation and trying to sort of restore land to the people that were thought to be the proper caretakers of it ended up leading to some very ugly conflict between different indigenous groups. And it ended up favoring the government that wanted to expropriate land because the idea was, oh, we need to, restore it to these protectors mm-hmm. and we need to restore it to its natural air, natural uh, habitat. And so we're going to expropriate these people. And it led to some very nasty things by the government. And the same thing happened in Indonesia. Nancy Lee Peluso at University of California, Berkeley. A lot of her work has been on how conservation was used rhetorically by the government to justify taking land from, from indigenous people and from citizens. And basically the rate of extraction of forest resources didn't change. Hmm. Because the government just reappropriated it for other uses, for but they used the rhetoric of conservation. That, of course, wasn't the intention of the conservation biologists there. But if you weren't aware of those political stakes, then that's what's going to lead to you. That ignorance is a, a, a key weakness, and that weakness ends up hurting the people who have the least power. And to me, that's just unacceptable. Uh, my mentor uh, wondered, John, wondered why I was so concerned about uh, these kinds of issues. And for me, it's just sort of organic, but to him, it finally made sense. He said, oh, your parents are both social workers. I got it now. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm sure that's something to do with it. I don't really view it as sort of the one-to-one, but definitely my parents have worked very hard for equality in society, for looking at ways to make sure everyone can be at the table. And I think that you can't, it's irresponsible to do science without an awareness of that. And how, um, as far, maybe like one level uh, more specific about how that, how that awareness manifests itself as a scientist. Um, what, you know, in an ideal world, how, um, how are you, how would you see scientists interacting with this political reality? Is it the changing the rhetoric of their, the articles that are published in journals or mm. actively speaking in Washington or what, what are the, or not just Washington, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I, I'm, to me, the, the first step is just at least being conversant in this, I mean, there's a lot of conservation biologists who don't even know there's controversy about this kind of work mm-hmm. and that don't realize, uh, for example, so Paul Robinson went through this in his book, that a lot of the conservation rhetoric, for example, in Africa is a really direct inheritance from the colonial era and that that was used to drive people off of land that actually, you know, the, the rhetoric was it was degraded. But actually, that was the state it had been in for quite some time. Mm-hmm. You know, they were comparing it to a forest that was in some other nearby area and saying, oh, it's not a forest anymore. Well, it never been a forest in that particular area. Uh, and so it's really, if you're not aware of this history even, then how can you try and stop it from being ha- from happening again? So just being aware of that and wh- whatever system you're working in, what the history is, there is, so you can at least make your, your choices in a, a conscious way. Sure. That if you want to be apolitical, know that maybe that's going to favor some things that maybe you don't favor, uh, favor some groups that you don't favor. Now, ideally, I would say actually you should get involved in speaking up with and for those who have less power. Uh, 
I was recently at a workshop and a colleague of mine uh, was saying, well, why don't you guys talk about conserving intact forest as much? Because a lot of our work is in how uh, sustainable agriculture can really support a lot of biodiversity conservation. He said, well, but you still need intact forest. We said, of course you do. We're totally for that. He said, well, why don't you talk about it more? I said, well, for one thing, I mean, people are going to have agriculture, so we should really focus a lot on what kind of agriculture we have. But then beyond that, a lot of times we talk about just the forest conservation, you end up talking about expropriating someone. He said, mm-hmm. well, yeah, well, no, let's just assume that they are at the table and that we're talking with people in an equitable manner. Now, you can't usually assume that, but if that's what you're doing, then actually that changes the conversation completely. Right. And so to me, just you know, having scientists who are aware of that, if you're going to sit down and talk about this, knowing that there are stakes at play with real people's lives, knowing that you actually as a first world scientist, if that's what you are, have a lot of power, a lot of privilege, a lot of things to unpack and be aware of. If you come at it like that, then that's actually a whole different conversation to me. And so to me, that's, that's the minimum due diligence. I would rather you advocate for those who have less power. I'd rather we have social justice as part of ecological sustainability. And I think that they are very linked. But that's not what everyone's excited about. So just be aware of it. Just like as a conservation biologist, you have to know about genetics. To me, you should also have to know about the actual politics of conservation, its history, and, and political ecology. And um, sort of in line with that, I heard you talk about how um, you know first world powerful scientists um, would still do well to be uh, you you mentioned like invo- being more involved in the communities they live in in order to build credibility, mm-hmm. which seemed like an interesting uh, project to me because I maybe for personal bias reasons, scientists get more credibility for me than maybe they deserve. But the, what, what is, um, for whence do you think of that, uh, the like lack of credibility in the scientific community and how does being involved fix that? Well, I think that, uh, there's a lot of scientists who are very worried about scientific credibility right now and feel like science is under attack. Um, there definitely are people who are attacking science, but I feel like the thing that's missed by scientists often is that if we're not talking to non-academics to citizens in general and developing those relationships, then basically what you're going to be doing is asking them to trust you because you're an expert, which is against the idea of science that everyone should be involved in thinking about these things. But to me, this gets to where actually physical scientists and natural scientists should read literature beyond their own little area and look at social Mm -hmm. science. For better or worse, the way that people interact and learn about the world is relational. Mm -hmm. We build trust based on our relationships and based on how someone's acted around us and how some class of people's acted around us. And it's simply unrealistic to ask citizens to trust scientists while scientists are this closeted class at some way over in elite institutions. If you're not part of the communities that you're working with, if you're not part of your own community, then people don't have the tools to build the kind of trust that actually is how socially we evolved as humans by trusting people based on looking at their faces, talking to them, looking at their actions, engaging what they're doing. And so for me, it's only just a a matter of logic and science. Like people trust you based on having a relationship with you. You have a relationship with everyone, but you should have a relationship with some people. And then those social networks will help you have credibility in the wider area. Also, if you're talking about conservation or food security and you're working in some community and you want some community to have greater access to food or to be better stewards of the environment in your eyes, then you're asking something of them. You're asking or demanding them to view things a certain way or to have certain actions. And I think at base, 
you know, if you believe in democracy or the ideals of democracy, that means actually having some kind of conversation with them to, to understand their world and actually build consent for the things that you say that you want to do. You can't, just because you have the science on your side, in my opinion, dictate what someone is supposed to do. You can try and convince them through conversation that this is the thing to do for you know certain goals, for conservation. Um, but just because we might have uh, be using, I think, a very powerful method, the method of, sci- uh, methods of science, doesn't mean we get to skip democracy. And to me, even just trying to affect policymakers is still trying to skip democracy in a way. We're not trying to talk to the people. We're just trying to convince people at the top that they should do what we've now found is correct. Um, and besides which, a number of researchers have pointed out um, you sort of are missing signals by not being involved with the community, that people who are on the ground are tapped into their own networks, are their own ebbs and flows of the natural world. And so they basically have information that you probably need. And if you're not talking to them, I mean, especially if they're less powerful, how is that information going to get to you? So you need to talk to them directly to get some of that information that might really change your analysis as well. And uh, how, I mean, this all sounds like, sounds like sense to me, but how, how, um, how does this, you know, you said you'd spend a lot of your time haranguing scientists. How often did they, I mean, how often are they saying like, quit haranguing me? Or they say like, what was the reaction? How receptive um, did you find? How often was that a successful harangue? <laughs> a successful harangue? Um, I mean, so I, I, I try, I try not to be haranguing about it. I mean, I, I maybe being a little bit provocative there, but um, I didn't have that many people disagree with me on principle. I think the interesting thing right now is that the institutional rewards in universities are not set up for us to do any of these things. We are not, hmm. as individual faculty, accountable to the public. Uh, some faculty hold themselves accountable, which I think is very admirable. But uh, you're accountable to your funding agencies, to your administration, to your students. But in terms of just the citizen on the street, you know, they don't have any input directly except for they could vote for their congressperson who may or may not vote for the NSF funding, you know. But you have no direct accountability uh, on average as a faculty member. Uh, And so, I mean, I think it makes it hard to add that because basically as faculty members, you have a lot of demands already. So just trying to add on direct accountability to the community is something some people choose to do, but it's not rewarded, I would say, usually. And um, I think that's changing somewhat. I think the NSF has had a National Science Foundation has a lot more focus on broader impacts and broader impacts actually meaning working really with communities or working really with uh, people outside of academia. Uh, my good friend Casey Taylor actually is doing a research project right now looking at how often broader impacts have been interpreted in National Science Foundation applications to mean going to your conference you're going to go to anyway. Hmm. And there's a lot of sort of rounding up. And a lot of us, I think almost all of us did that because it's necessary with all the demands on your time. But the NSF is getting really serious now about not just saying, I'm going to go to my professional conference and I'm going to invite some high school students or something, and that's going to be my broader impacts. So I think that there is some some momentum in that direction, but uh, it's hard to change the standards by which we're judged, and not all faculty are willing to do it. Uh, but I think that in the end, we need to think about creative ways in being really directly accountable to citizens and communities. And actually, the Ecological Society of America, to its credit, is adding some of that to its code of ethics. Uh, I think now the part that needs to be added to that effort is that the senior scientists there need to say, if that's not part of this, then this person's tenure hearing, for example, might go a different way. Mm-hmm. And that I don't think we see at all yet. You know, oh, you didn't uh, interact with the community. I'm not sure about your tenure case. Right, that's that's where the rubber teeth, hits the road. Right? Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so changing tax a little bit. I know you were involved in this really cool project, um, I'm sure among other projects, but in Belo Horizonte in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just speak briefly just like what was that what was that project how were you involved and what was going on there uh, so uh bello uh brazilian city two and a half million people um since 1993 has had some really comprehensive food programs uh, food supply food security food sovereignty uh programs and so when i was in graduate school and trying to think of how do you put these human welfare and sustainability issues together uh, i was thinking about food policies, and especially sort of local governance and how local decisions could tie into affecting the environment. And so this city in 93 started this whole suite of food security programs. They cut infant malnutrition and, and uh, infant mortality by a half or more within a period of about 10 years. And uh, a colleague of mine had heard about it. They also did some co- programs where they worked with local farmers who are situated in the Atlantic Rainforest. So for me, this was this perfect project where you had the Atlantic Rainforest you had agriculture or small-scale agriculture, and a lot of my mentor's research and my research ended up being on how small-scale agriculture next to fragmented natural habitats, how the interaction happened. And uh, they were connected to the city through this program because the program tried to bring small farmers directly to the city to sell their produce directly to consumers, which actually ended up splitting what was a 1% or 200% markup from retailers between the consumer uh, in terms of reduced costs and the farmer in terms of increased prices for them. Uh, so I was just trying to see how this all played out. You know, why was this uh, series of policies so effective in addressing hunger? How did it affect the livelihoods of the farmers and how those farmers affect the rainforest around them? Uh, so that was my, my PhD research and uh, still working on, on getting, that, uh, getting that published. But it seemed like definitely for the farmers that were involved in the program, it was a, a positive. They felt like their livelihood was much more stable, much more sustainable. Uh, they seem to diversify some of their crops. Uh, and then we did some follow-up work there last year with a postdoc, Johan Odekop, um, and he was looking at how the national zero-hunger programs, especially one where the government buys from small farmers, how that was affecting land use change. Um, at least we found it at this point that even though it is providing some income for farmers, it isn't really affecting their, their decisions to deforest or not. In this area, actually, there hasn't been increased deforestation over the past 10 years, which is a, a nice thing. So... Um, the program doesn't seem to have a huge effect on that decision, but at the very least, it seems to be supporting farmers and is not making any that problem worse at all. Do you feel like um, some of the? I know there there's an interesting um, in the Brazilian constitution. There is a right to food as a citizen, which um, is you know is in other constitutions, but is is not in ours and is not in many other ones. It's, it's a really really new thing in most constitutions. Yeah, the, where they exist. Yeah. Does that? Um, how important do you think that was? Because you know, many of these policies seem like the kind of thing that might work in other countries that, that are just sort of like logistical changes in the way food is moving. Um, does the constitutional underpinning for that, did that, did that change things much in the way it played out in Brazil? Or was it just mm. these are all new ideas um, and they work together? That's a really interesting question. I mean, actually, I'd say in Brazil that that constitutional amendment followed a recognition uh, from people on the ground and from the government for years that that was the way things were going. And that is the what the government was working towards. Um, so I would say it, it changed in institutionalizing it. You know, it's there now, and that's something now that the government is obligated to respect. And that's been very powerful in Brazil in terms of, for example, um, their constitutional uh, provision that the land belongs to the people. And so the Landless Rural Workers Movement in Brazil, the MST, used that provision basically to force some agrarian reform and land redistribution that 
most other countries has already happened to some degree. Brazil basically never had a big breaking up of land holding. I mean, in the United States, we had sort of the squatters, and you would go out and take land that often was expropriated from Native Americans, but we had this essentially redistribution of land among a lot of smallholders for many years. A lot of other countries had done that one way or another intentionally or uh, when forced. Brazil basically never had that. And so this constitutional amendment allowed people to say, you know, this is a right that is in the Constitution. We should have it. And, you know, force the government's hand through agitation and uh, activism and many years of work. But without that constitutional amendment, I, it would have been harder to maintain than mobilization and have the, the outcomes. So I would say that even though the government uh, in Brazil is doing a lot of things that are very positive on food, uh, food rights, that that amendment makes sure that that's going to continue and there's a basis for that to continue indefinitely, which is really important, you know, that continuity. Okay, and then a, a final question. This I try and at the end of these um, give a chance for like an endorsement or a if there's a project you're working on or a book that's coming um, to, that having like some bright-eyed, bushy-tailed college kids <laughs> uh, involved with would be helpful for, we'd love to hear about that. So anything uh, that like a somewhat overcommitted but pretty eager college kid might might benefit from. Uh, well, we do uh, often have interns at my uh, my organization, Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. So if there's people with a lot of enthusiasm for this, you know, it's a great place to get some experience. We've got a lot of links to a lot of community groups. Uh, I also will get clobbered by my vice president of development if I don't mention, and many other people, that we are looking for a new president. So I'm not the students that uh, are listening to this. Probably 21-year-old not for, looking but for. They might have someone that they really admire or some mentors or some people that they think would be a great uh, new leader of our organization. So definitely go to our website, and if you've got any suggestions or someone, you know, send that on. You know, just get that out there. But uh, definitely uh, interning with, uh, with that program is, uh, with our organization, I think would be a great opportunity. And um, I guess just more broadly, my plug is always just get involved in something in the community that goes outside of your bubble. Get involved serving some other part of the community and learning what, you know, their way of life, what their problems are. Because you might go in there thinking we need this kind of food security or this kind of conservation. And if you don't actually talk to the people, just like with the scientists, maybe there's some other problem you didn't even heard of that actually should be the priority. And if you want to be a good ally, you need to know what's actually going on with the people you want to work with. Awesome. Well, Dr. M. Jahi Chappelle, thank you so much for coming in. This has been Chewing the Fat with the Yo Sustainable Food Project. And uh, come back next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at www.yale.edu slash sustainable food.